Hello and welcome to another episode of the R Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host. And today's episode will be on modern history, pretty much related to government, money and education. So basically, our political system, our economic system and our education system. Now, these episodes to give you an idea of where we are, if you're coming in fresh, this is the beginning roughly of season four, I guess this is the second episode technically. And what I'm doing is going back and covering some of the content that I covered starting with the very beginning of this podcast back in season one. But bringing it all together, covering it from a more macro perspective, bringing in some input on things that I have learned or different perspectives that I've gained or ones that I can add uh, that I might not have had at that point in time, and trying to connect all the dots and connect the pieces and look at this from a very broad perspective. So if you're interested in the content I'm talking about in the previous episode, this episode, and the coming ones, I go into a lot more detail detail on each one of these things in the earlier episodes of the podcast. However, I'm not really talking about the exact same examples. Some of them I will reference that are the same ones, and some will be brand new. I try to not make it something that isn't worth your while if you're a longtime listener, because longtime listeners would be probably the most loyal listeners that I have, and I want to make sure that they're still getting good stuff. So that is my goal. I'm trying to cover this from a new perspective with some new content, and it still will be beneficial if you have not been with the show since the beginning to go back to those very early episodes and give get even more depth out of these different subjects. I think it's a lot more reasonable as well, because before, if you would just go back and have to listen to the entire backlog of this podcast, that would take you a very long time. However, now, if you are following along with season four, for example, you could have listened to the episode last week, and then sometime between that week-long period, between last episode and this one, you could have gone back and listened to the first, I think it's four, maybe five episodes of the podcast back in season one, and filled in a lot of those gaps, gotten a little more depth, gotten some different angles by listening to all that. And then you can listen to this episode and then go back and listen to the next three, four, five episodes that were related to this content and get more from that. So that's something that I would definitely recommend. This set of content that I am covering today will focus on the modern history of government. So last week talked about the origins of government, talked about the origins of money and banking, and now we're getting more into the modern history of banking, things like the Federal Reserve, Bretton Woods, these types of things. And then also, I kind of ended, if I remember right, last week's episode on the education front, talking about the Prussian education system. So we'll talk about, we'll pick up roughly in that time frame and bring it on up to roughly modern times and the systems that we deal with in today's world. 
Now, I did a themes episode back in season one after covering similar content, and that themes episode was on Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics. These are two different economic models that have different opinions on economics. And so I did a whole episode on that. So if you want more on that, then go for it. I will touch on that in this episode, but I won't go into any great detail. But there is some very relevant stuff for modern times, at least as of this recording, there is some uh, potential issues that might arise if you are from an Austrian perspective, whereas if you're from a Keynesian perspective, you might expect something different. So I think uh, the future, the very near future, will kind of play out some of these theories, which kind of is nice, except for the fact that we might have an economic crash, which might not be so nice. But in general, it is a good time to learn about these things. Now, the other episode that I had done back in season one after covering similar content was one on American history going back to the founding of the country, even prior to the founding. And if I remember right, I covered the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and a few other documents, the Federalist Papers, and kind of traced what was going on, what the ideologies were early on, how that changed, some of the corruption involved, and uh, really hit that from a perspective that the average history book or podcast probably is not going to hit it from. So uh, there's a lot more on that that I might just kind of gloss over in this episode. But if you're interested, go back to that episode. I will put a link for all of these episodes I just referenced, all of this content that was uh, similar, kind of parallel that I did back in season one. So those will be in the show notes. And please do see that. Now, to move on to the bulk of today's episode, I'll start off with the modern history of government. Now, uh, if you remember in the last episode, I talked about the ages of man, and that's a framework that I'll probably use a lot more. I didn't have that back when I started the show, but I have that now, so I'll use it. Now, with the ages of man, we are currently in or just coming out of the age of economics. This would be the age of the post-enlightenment world, and it's a place, a time when people are seeking a people's utopia. This is kind of the idea that people are going for. Now, this is, to give you some context and to remind you, this is coming out of the age of empire. And the age of empire was about growing the empire through force. The age of economics is about capitalism. It is about enlightenment thinking. It is about using skill and using cunning, using markets, these types of things, different business structures. This is the age that we are, I would argue, probably coming out of now. Now, within this age of economics, this would be the modern history uh, from a governmental perspective, political theory perspective, the focus could be on multiple different things. So, oh, the different types of governments that have been very prominent in the past, I guess, modern history of the world, 
These kind of can be grouped, at least in my opinion, in three camps. Ones that were focused on the group, ones that are focused on the man, and ones that are focused on the people. And so the group would be something more collectivist. This would be like socialism and communism. They definitely played a large role in modern history. There are many examples of countries that went this route. And especially getting into like the Soviet Union and some very big examples, um, there are definite things that you can point to and research and get some examples of what that looked like, how that played out. And I will say that... To an extent, those political philosophies did not win out in the age of economics. Now, there is an asterisk there. There's a catch that socialism kind of has, but uh, not in the way that it was originally carried out. And it was overall, throughout the age of economics, I would say beaten out by a more capitalist approach. Now, the next group of political structures that countries have organized around in modern history, I would focus more on the man, or that's how I would say that they focused. Now, this is something that is like a dictatorship or authoritarianism, where you have a person, oftentimes a populist, that comes into power and is a strong man that people get behind. They draw the loyalty of the people. They speak the words that the people want to hear. So it's really interesting. I don't remember at what point I talked about this back in the Modern History of Government episode I did in season one, but uh, I was re-listening to that. I re-listened to the first few episodes just to get a feel for where I was coming from. And uh, it might have not even been the modern history one. It might have been the origins of government. But I talk about democracy and some of these other options for different forms of government, like monarchy and and the like. And so uh, with democracy, I kind of laid out this uh, description of a leader, a populist that would rise to power, would speak things that weren't necessarily politically correct. He would come from a background that is not necessarily political, and he would garner the support of the common working man. And basically, I was describing Donald Trump, who had not been on the political stage as of that time. So that was kind of interesting to hear me describe Describe, oh, I'm talking about Trump. And oh, no, this was before Trump. But yes, it was something that actually went all the way back to Plato is where I was getting the material from. But with this, going back to uh, these modern forms of government that have been tried over and over again, they're still being tried today, but they gained some prominence and there was this battle going on. And so we have plenty of examples of dictatorships and authoritarianism in modern history. Uh, This, I would argue, is different than an empire and having an emperor. That was a different model about building an empire versus today's world with nation states and having a single person that gains a lot of popular support, rises to power, and uses that to unify a nation around them. And often that doesn't go well. Usually they turn into a despot and the people are not very happy. Or you have things like the Nazis that come into power through the rise of a dictator, Hitler. And so this has played out a lot in modern history and continues to do so. But the third set of governmental structures that have been prominent, and I would argue that won out throughout the age of economics, would be ones focused on the people. And if you remember, 
when I described the modern history of government and the age of economics and what was going on in that time, that kind of the goal in most people's minds was a people's utopia. And so it's all about the people. And these forms of government related to the people would be democracy or republics. And these really started to rise to prominence. You could even say maybe a federation or confederation of nation states. There are plenty of examples of that. Things even like the EU and United Nations are more similar to this model. But democracy especially and republics to a lesser degree These definitely took the limelight throughout this age of economics. And with that, I would argue that part of the reason is because of the economic structure, because capitalism was the economic structure that really won out in this time period. And with socialism or communism, you might need capitalism or some sort of open market in order to achieve certain things, but it's it's not the main driver. And with a dictatorship or, or authoritarianism, uh, also capitalism does not take the driver's seat. It's the authoritarian that takes the driver's seat and tells the capitalists what to do. Whereas when you're talking about democracies and republics, it's much more akin to talking about the people, talking about uh, the fo- this focus on consumers and markets, again, all about the people. And so with this, the collectivist approaches that are focused on the group, so let's say socialism, communism, and the like, they struggle with things like price discovery. It's really hard to determine what value a thing has if there is no market for that thing. And that becomes a bit of an issue. You also also have the tragedy of the commons, where if everything belongs to everyone and a lot of stuff is shared, there might not be any private property, then basically no one's really motivated to take care of it or to work hard for something because, oh, it's someone else's responsibility or, oh, it'll be here anyway or, oh, someone else will deal with it. These types of things. You have the tragedy of the commons that comes into play. And then you also have this issue when you get into these uh, political systems based on the man with a dictatorship or authoritarianism or something of that nature. Uh, These have an issue with populism, what they're based on, because populism is fickle. The will of the people changes. It's not something that you can harness and hold on to for very long periods of time. There may be a few exceptions that you can find throughout history, but in general, this is not something that works. Whereas if you have a democracy or a republic, these are systems that are fluid enough that they can change with the will of the people. For example, a democracy, uh, which I'm not a huge fan of personally, uh, majority rules and they force their views on the minority. That's probably not a very moral system in my opinion, but I would probably also agree that it does work better than most of these others at least. But with that type of system, if the will of the people changes and the milieu changes, then a democratic system would also just necessarily change because it's based on the people and usually the people voting for certain laws or certain leaders. And so you have this system that does change with the people, whereas, let's say, a dictatorship, maybe someone rises to power, is really popular, and then he's no longer popular, the will of the populace changes, well, that system doesn't really change. You still have the same 
dictator, and it doesn't really work that way. And so you have these issues that I would argue are probably all centered around this aspect of economics. So I'll get into this again in a second, but uh, I kind of want to insert here America, because that's the U.S. is the country that I live in, that I know the most about, and that I draw pretty much all my examples from. Most listeners are from America, but there are quite a few that are from other places. So I don't want to only talk about that, but I think all of these are relevant for you no matter where you live. And I'm sure you can resonate with a lot of this content, whether you are an American or not. But in America... If you go all the way back to when it was first colonized, the colonists came in, they started up these colonies, and it was very libertarian. The focus was largely on the individual being able to do what they wanted. A lot of free will was definitely the focus here. And uh, there are some caveats to this, most definitely. This is within the context of, let's say, a reformed Christian perspective, because they were not always accepting of other people. And there were certain behaviors that they were not very fond of in most every colony. And so within that framework of Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, then it was a lot more libertarian. So I guess there is a caveat there with religion. But as the colonies started to grow and spread, and instead of having these small independent units that pretty much all govern themselves, as it became more of a nation, especially as you shift into the Constitution, uh, we start to get into something more like a republic. In the Constitution, it is supposed to have set up a republic. Many would argue whether that actually is how it worked out or not, but regardless, that was the shift from a more libertarian perspective with individual, basically, city-states that ruled themselves based on Enlightenment principles, biblical principles, and free will. That changed to a republic, where you still have a similar model, but uh, regions are brought together and unified more, and they are all under a more centralized authority, but not to the extent that the federal government made all the decisions for the states. That was kind of the whole point is that the states were still independent political units. And they just had a few things that they joined together on to make some decisions that were very broad and macro and applied to everybody. Well, especially as you get into the Civil War, that really solidified this idea of a republic um, versus this idea of libertarianism. That was kind of the nail in the coffin that, hey, officially, this is the way it is. And it brought us more into a centralized government perspective. And it has continued down that path ever since. So we go from a more libertarian perspective to a more republic perspective to a more democratic socialist perspective. And uh, with the democratic socialism, you can look at someone like Woodrow Wilson, who, in my opinion, is probably the worst president in all of history. And a lot of the policies that he instituted, the agencies he instituted, someone like FDR, even more modern, you could go with someone like Obama, that really grew out the realm of the state, what the state did, what the state was responsible for, what jurisdiction the state had in matters of an individual's life or in matters of business. And so with this, with this expansion of the bureaucracy, the expansion of the federal government, things shifting more into this model, the 
while we technically are a republic, and I know that, and that is technically true, the way the U.S. functions is much more like democratic socialism, where you have the people that are voting for things, and a lot of this is based on uh, the opinion of the masses, and it's uh, something where they are choosing people, and through that and through their opinions and polling, these people are choosing policies based on what will probably get them reelected, as well as a lot of the money coming in from the capitalist side, which we won't get into quite yet. But you have that, and then you also have the socialist side, where you have this large centralized government that is taking care of many different aspects and ruling over many different aspects of the citizens' lives. You have lots of different agencies that are providing things like welfare and retirement and healthcare to an extent, things of this nature. And so this is a more socialist approach to governance. And so now we're more into democratic socialism. And I would say that this evolution is still based on the people. All of these, from a more individualistic perspective to a more collectivist perspective, but all focused on the people. And I would argue the age of economics is one that has a focus on the people. Now, while it has a focus on the people, the ones really in charge would be the uh, people with the skills and with the cunning. It would be the people from the corporate world and the corporate class. These are the people that truly hold the power, but a lot of the milieu that this time period exists in is focused around these philosophies that are uh, broadly focused on the people. So there is this difference between reality and uh, perspective. There's a difference between ideology and how rulers really act. Think of someone like Machiavelli with the prince and the way that he described things. The, the rulers pretend to have a religion or an ideology and to follow the same thing the peoples follow, but in reality, they don't. And they don't really care about those things, usually, at least, you know, of course, plenty of exceptions, but usually they don't care. But the people really do care. So there's this narrative that's built up around what people really care about, what people want, what people are talking about, different philosophies that come into uh, popularity and come out of popularity. Now, remember, we're talking about post-Enlightenment, so all of this is really coming from Enlightenment thinking, but then we get into like post-modernism and things start to get a little weird. And so that is part of this evolution where things are shifting. Now, with the ages of man, each age starts to corrupt. Each age starts to really hit its glory period. It starts to grow and the bureaucracy builds, kind of like the rise and fall of an empire. And as that grows, the bureaucracy gets really big, the ideology starts to change, and the system starts to get more and more corrupt. And that's where we get back into this idea of politicians being bought by corporations and uh, private, extremely wealthy elite individuals, and how this is the way the system truly works behind the scenes, even though uh, broadly we are structured more like a democratic socialist perspective, but in uh, legal terms, we're technically a republic, even though that's not really how things operate. So it's really interesting. You have all these different layers, but there is a definite difference between each one 
one of them. However, they all still do apply and need to be known about. So we have to keep all of these things into perspective. Now, as we shift into uh, a time period much closer to us, we have a world, a state, a country, a nation that is much more statist than it once was. We have a heavily statist milieu that we live in, and this is more of a religious faith. It's not something where people uh, really like the idea of their founding fathers and these principles and a philosophy and an ideology. Uh, That's not really what it is. It's a lot more religious. They have this faith that their government and their nation is the greatest and will always be the greatest and will take care of them. And if society has any problems, then the state is the one that will fix it. We just need to enact this policy or this regulation or this person. Uh, We need to focus on this party to get control. And, and then things will be all better because they have this faith that the state is this all-powerful entity that will be able to take care of the needs of the people, just like I would say Christians look to God for these things. And there's also this aspect of evangelism. And uh, evangelism really comes into play in the age of economics because it's all about spreading democratic socialism throughout the world. They say that we want peace and prosperity throughout the world. And the way to get this is to spread democracy is usually how it's worded. And it's interesting that a place that is formally known as a republic is spreading democracy, which is very different than being a republic. You can go to Plato's Republic and hear the differences between all of these different forms of uh, governmental systems, and he is not a fan at all of democracy, but he is much more of a fan of a republic. So interesting that the republic is spreading democracy. Well, democracy is a lot easier to control, and that might be part of it. But the point is that the U.S. went throughout the world in modern history and overthrew dictators or overthrew authoritarian regimes. They helped uh, They helped to bring about the demise of many communist nations and socialist nations uh, through warfare as well as through economic means and other means, false flags and all kinds of stuff. And so this is something that really marks this period of time. It's all about, uh, from an American perspective, from a U.S. perspective, it's all about the U.S. going around and setting up nations in their own image, so to say. And this is a corruption of the previous age, the age of empire. The age of empire, it it had war that was based on building out territory and ruling over this vast territory, and uh, all of it would be under directly under the emperor. And they would often, at least the successful empires, would allow these new territories that they conquered to exist and to follow their own ways of doing things, their own culture. Oftentimes that was even celebrated, such as in Rome, as long as they fell in line with Roman law. So as long as you played within this context of Roman law, then you can kind of do what you want as a territory or as an area. And this would be possibly similar to early America, like I mentioned, as long as we're within this religious framework, then it's very libertarian, but you cannot step outside of that framework. And so that was the age of empire. But 
war is based not on gaining land and territory anymore in the age of economics. And each age is a corruption of the previous age. The previous age gets corrupted, as I talked about that cycle, which leads to the next age, which that next age then is largely based on the corruption of the previous age. So a corruption of this empire model, this imperial model, would be that the goal is to influence. It's to grow power. It's to control people and places and resources versus actually ruling over land and territory and ruling people directly and uh, owning the land that has the resources. Instead of these things, it's building up this influence behind the scene and making sure you have the control, the power, the political sway to influence and control behind the scenes all of these different territories. The U.S. does not directly control this vast swath of territory around the world. That's not how this works. But I think all of us are probably very apt to recognize that the U.S. has a lot of influence around the world in many different countries. And we have a lot of sway. We have a lot of power. We have a lot of influence. We have a lot of control in the world that we live in today. And a lot of this is because we are living in a world of this corruption of the Age of Empire, where it's not based on force. That was the the dominant trait of the Age of Empire. But this new age, the Age of Economics, is based on skill and based on cunning. And so these are things where you are using these techniques that are more behind the scenes, more influential versus directly controlling and overtaking. And that's what we're getting into with this Age of Economics. And overall, the idea was to reshape the world in our own image or in the image we believe the world should be shaped in. Again, going back to the idea of the people, a people's utopia. This is what we were, uh, at least this is what was said that we were trying to create around the world would be as close to a people's utopia as is possible in reality. And uh, the reality of what was actually going on was very different. But uh, that kind of gives you an idea of looking at one country, I would say the most important country in this period of the age of economics, that would be the United States and kind of how that evolved within this time period that we're talking about here. Now, I've talked about the influence of economics, and that plays a huge role, which would be why I would label this the age of economics. And so I mentioned Keynesian versus Austrian. Just for a very brief uh, overview of what this is, and uh, I guess just the applicable part that I want to mention here is that Keynesianism believes that it's all about demand, and demand is the most important thing with markets. If demand is too low, then you're going to get a recession. If demand is too high, however, you're going to get inflation. And from a Keynesian perspective, you want to make economic models that are very broad, but you want to use this data, uh, these statistical equations, and uh, you want to use them to manage markets from a centralized Uh, place. And so the government should step in when things are getting too hot or getting too cold, when uh, demand is getting too high or too low. They should step in with spending. They should step in with policies or rate setting or whatever, whatever tools are at their disposal and try to maintain the balance. And that is their role. And that is what Keynes would have argued and Keynesianism argues. And so from the Austrian perspective, 
it's a little different. It's not all about demand in the way that the Keynesians believe. It's all about markets as a whole. And supply and demand obviously plays a huge role in markets. But uh, the idea is that markets themselves, it's not about controlling these markets. It's about what a market is in and of itself by itself. And so they believe that rates and prices should be set by voluntary transactions and what they would probably call true demand. And so with this, they would say that manipulations cause disruptions. They prevent market balance because they step in and change things. So in a truly free market from an Austrian perspective, if demand was getting a little low, then prices would change. The market would react automatically through spontaneous order, and that would bring things back in balance. And you might have some hard times to get you back in balance, but it will balance itself out. And that is what they believed. So they might believe that you might get a mild recession, but you're probably not going to get a major depression. Whereas the Keynesians, uh, typically that led to multiple depressions and big recessions in modern history. But uh, the Austrians, who knows, it could have happened as well. But with Austrian economics, uh, one of the key points here is that they talk about the market cycle. And Keynesians talk about this as well, that markets go up, markets go down, you have this cycle. And the Keynesians are all about stepping in and uh, managing things and manipulating things in order to uh, mitigate these cycles. That was one of the reasons they said at least the Federal Reserve was created, and I guess we'll talk about them next. But uh, with this, with the Austrians, uh, they take a different approach. What they would say is that you have this problem with manipulation and you have governments that set artificially low interest rates. So what a government will do is make the interest rates extra low and money is cheap. And when money is cheap, people borrow a lot more money. And when they're borrowing money, they're borrowing it to do something with it. They're not borrowing it to put it in their savings account and then pay it off. That's not really how this works. They're borrowing it to own a home or a second home or a rental property or buy a car or start a business or do a project with their business. Whatever it is, they're borrowing it to do things. And when money is super cheap, whatever it is you're going to do with it doesn't really have to be all that profitable for you to make money. So if you're paying 0.5% on the money you borrow and you have a project that's going to return probably 2%, worst case, 1%, then worst case, you are doubling that return uh, compared to what you're paying for the money. The money is so cheap that a project that has a very small return is still profitable for you. So people will still seek these types of things. And that would be known as malinvestment, where they're investing in things that they probably shouldn't. And so the issue comes in when rates change. And as rates start to go up, and this could go either way. So uh, from a Keynesian perspective, if they saw that inflation was getting too high, then they would artificially raise rates in order to combat inflation. And that would be this time period we're talking about in the market cycle. From an Austrian perspective, the markets would automatically raise the cost of capital, the price of money would go up uh, as the demand for money went up. So you probably wouldn't have too high of inflation because the price would go up and match that and that would balance out. 
But either way, the issue is that if you've already had this artificially cheap money and you have all these malinvestments from individuals, from corporations on all levels, even governments, then when rates rise, they can no longer cover these expenses. So if you have rates start to go up, then places are no longer going to be able to borrow money for the same things that they were borrowing it for before. And anytime you have variable rates, this really came up in 2008, 2009, then as rates rise, what someone used to be able to afford, now they can't because now it's too expensive to pay that debt. And this causes a lot of problems. And so with this, the Austrians would argue that this is why you then have that crash. You have this bubble bust, and this is the downturn in the market. And it's going to be much worse from an Austrian perspective, because these rates were manipulated and all of these malinvestments. Whereas the Austrians would claim if you would have let the market regulate itself and balance itself, you might have had a slight downturn because price the price for money, the rate would have gone up and that would have been painful for some people, but you would have never had this artificially super cheap money for an extended period of time with all of these malinvestments. They say that that's why everything goes wrong. Whereas the Keynesians, would say, oh, well, you needed that cheap money to grow demand because you're coming out of the previous downturn, and that's what a government should do. Maybe they just did that a little too much. Who knows? But uh, these are the two different perspectives. And why I really want to highlight that right now would be because uh, this is the time period we're in as as of me recording this episode. If you're listening to this in the future, then maybe you already know what happens over the next few years. And that's always interesting to go back and listen to stuff that was recorded prior to big events like prior to COVID and things like that prior to Trump, like I mentioned earlier. But with this, we have had artificially cheap money for a long time for many, many years, we have not had a major recession or downturn in, I don't know, since the 2008 financial crisis. So it's been quite a while. Historically, these cycles only last about 10 years. And so we are way overdue for a downturn. In addition to the fact that we've had near zero interest rates for years, basically ever since the 2008 crash, uh, interest rates have been extremely low at historical lows. And so if you believe that this leads to malinvestment, and this might not be such a good thing, well, keep in mind that the Federal Reserve is planning on raising rates very soon. And around the world, places are starting to raise rates. Now, uh, as of this recording, at least, rates have not begun to rise quite yet. Right now, they're just saying, well, inflation is high, so we are going to raise rates, and we might raise them multiple points uh, just in this next year. And so it'll be very interesting to see how markets react and how the economy reacts to this situation that the Keynesians, Keynesians and Austrians really uh, fought about quite frequently back in the day. But uh Again, going back to this whole being the age of economics, uh, the Austrian Keynesian thing played a huge role in all of this with uh, capitalism really winning out over everything else and uh, how to understand markets was something that was extremely important. Now, this has shifted us into the modern history of money, money being a very broad term, including banking and economics, these types of things. That's what we have actually already gotten into. But uh, with this, to be uh, more specific with that, 
the Federal Reserve was something that was started in this modern history that we're talking about here. So when we're talking about the modern history of money, you can think of uh, the Federal Reserve that I would argue really started in 1907. And I say started, uh, meaning that the idea for it started, because you had this panic of 1907. There is a possibility that it was an intentional uh, sell-off that uh, really riled up markets, a uh, huge sell-off, and J.P. Morgan and some others stepped in and uh, supported things. They they saved the markets when in reality they just bought it bottom dollar and made a whole bunch of money when it went up. So kind of like the Rothschilds, if you go back to uh, Waterloo and those different things, which I've talked about in other episodes. But um, with this, you had this sentiment, again, talking about the will of the people, the uh, sentiment, the ideology of the people that's actually very different than reality, but it still plays an extremely important role. Uh, that really played a huge role here because the sentiment of the people became something where they did not really trust big banks. They didn't really trust markets. And they believed that uh, maybe something should happen. We shouldn't let these gigantic swings happen because they're very painful. We don't want them to happen. And so, uh, again, if you go with a more conspiratorial approach that that sell-off was intentional, and then the same people that gained on that, J.P. Morgan and their allies, were the ones that ended up running the Federal Reserve and kind of were every step along the way involved in all this, uh, yeah, that that probably is likely the reality of how things played out. But from a, uh, a more ideological perspective, a more mainstream history perspective, they would say that people just got spooked from this sell-off and then they wanted something to happen. You know, problem, reaction, solution. There was this problem that um, markets are lightly regulated. They were not heavily regulated at the time. And so the reaction was that, hey, we should do something about this. So there's this huge downturn. Let's say that was the problem, this big sell-off. The reaction by the public was that, oh, we need to do something. Someone needs to step in. Someone needs to do something. And the solution happened to be the Federal Reserve. So you actually had a very conspiratorial meeting that occurred on Jekyll Island with J.P. Morgan, representatives of the Rothschilds, the, uh, who else was it, the Rockefellers, and uh, one other, if I remember right. But they actually were involved in a conspiracy behind the scenes. Uh, Senator Aldrich was another one. He was the political arm of this, and so uh, who actually married one of the Rockefeller daughters. But uh, the whole point here is that they met in secret, they disguised their names, they sent everybody on the island back home, all the staff, and they had this secret meeting about basically how do we control the monetary system of this country? And they being mostly the bankers, kind of the elitists that you hear talked about, maybe in modern times they would refer to this as the deep state, uh, but the beginnings of this, you go back to the Rothschilds again, the Cecil Rhodes Roundtable groups, it, it was this crowd, the Bilderberg crowd um, of that time, the beginning of the robber barons this time period. And so uh, they decided that they were going to try to actually do this. They were going to try to take over the monetary system. And they came up with this plan. And uh, basically, that plan was the Federal Reserve. And it went through a few iterations. When they first launched it, they publicly supported it. You know, they met in secret. And so all of this was not known at the time, whereas now it is very well known. There's even a plaque at the place where they had this meeting at Jekyll Island. But at the time, it wasn't known. So uh, Senator Aldridge, I believe, was the one that propo 
opposed it, and all these big bankers and corporate uh, people came up publicly in support of this saying, yes, this is exactly what we should do. And the people, not trusting the bankers and the capitalists, they said, oh, then we are not going to do that. No way. If you like it, we don't. And so they changed it. They bounced it around from one political side of the spectrum to the other and ended up getting the Federal Reserve Act passed. And it was something that was basically the whole idea of what they planned. And so it went from being a more decentralized model of uh, uh, basically of governing the monetary system to a much more centralized model. And when we're talking about this modern history of government, this age of economics, money had this evolution just like uh, governments did. And so with money, it went from basically hard money to fiat money. And hard money would be currencies that are backed by a specific thing, usually gold or another precious metal. Gold was the common choice throughout this age. And the dollar, well, the US dollar, was backed by gold at, at a time. And this is something that did change. So that brings us into this evolution as we're shifting into a more fiat money system, where it's a money that's not really backed by anything, but the government saying that it is backed by themselves because they promise because they say so. And so that would be fiat money. And that is what we have now. But at the time, it wasn't. So go back to World War One and the time period before that, uh, we were on a more hard money standard. And so after World War Two, you had this situation where a lot of the European countries were totally destroyed and their economies were collapsed and they weren't really doing very well. And so you had this meeting called Bretton Woods and it led to the Bretton Woods Agreement. And with Bretton Woods, basically the pertinent information here is that they decided to back the world's currencies by the dollar because the dollar was backed by gold. So whereas it used to be each country's currency was backed by gold or something else of that nature, now what the Americans said was that the dollar's backed by gold. So if you back the pound or the Deutschmark or something like that by dollars, then essentially they're basically backed by gold. So you don't have to worry about the gold. And we will even redeem dollars for gold anytime you want. And so countries went along with this, and the U.S. dollar became the world reserve currency. Now, uh, then you had a bit of an issue in the early 70s, I think it was 1971, when the U.S. cancels the gold standard. So now all these countries are backed by dollars, which were backed by gold. So, um, you know, from this stage of one to the next to the next, they were, in a sense, a hard money, representative hard money, so to say, but now they're not. And so a lot of countries didn't really uh, like that very much. That wasn't looked on fondly, but regardless, that's just the way it was, and there's really nothing they can do about it. Because in addition to the dollar already being the world reserve currency and uh, the U.S. being the top economy in the world, I would say because they capitalized on the destruction in Europe between World War I and World War II, and the U.S. was mostly untouched, and they just prospered. We, uh, yeah, a lot of investment going on there, even to the Nazis, and yeah, lots of uh, issues, uh, corruption, things like that. I would refer you to Antony Sutton and the Wall Street 
trilogy where he talks about the finance and the connections there between Wall Street and the Bolsheviks, Wall Street and the Nazis, and Wall Street and I forget what the third one was. It's trilogy, but uh, fairly academic, so maybe a little dry, but a lot of very good information there if you are interested in these types of things. But I'm not going to get into those things. So what I will say would be that World War One. Uh, prior to World War One, I, I should say, the Middle East was divided up among the most powerful Western countries. This was something that was done conspiratorially that then later came out. I believe it was when the Russian Revolution happened, if I remember right, they found, the revolutionaries found these documents, basically the agreement documents, where these Middle Eastern countries and territories, well, they weren't countries at the time, it was territories of the Ottoman Empire, were uh, divided up among these Western powers, and they had these debates and agreements and things like this before World War I even happened. So uh, largely, that's kind of the point of World War I, is that you take over and divide up the Ottoman Empire so that they cannot become a dominant force in the world. Because the West, the West needs to win out, not the East. And uh, that was their uh, view of the world. And so with this, the the Western powers not only uh, were able to capitalize on World War I and the destruction, basically, of the Ottoman Empire, they were even able to set up who were going to be the rulers, what were going to be the boundaries of all the countries. They, they basically reshaped the Ottoman Empire in their own image. And a curious thing, oil was something that was newly being uh, valued as it is today as being one of the most crucial resources in the entire world. That was a fairly new uh, thing that became something that was extremely influential in worldwide markets, and it was also fairly newly discovered, uh, within the scope of history at least, that uh, the Middle East was extremely rich in oil, especially places like Saudi Arabia. And so it's interesting that uh, we decide to create this country called Saudi Arabia. We put the Saudi royals into power, and the U.S. ends up making a deal with the Saudis where they would denominate oil contracts and sell oil only for dollars. You can only use dollars to buy oil. And if the Saudis were doing it, then it was basically the standard and became the standard of OPEC. And that was basically the only way you could buy oil for decades. It was you had to use dollars. And so between Bretton Woods and the petrodollar model, the U.S., basically had the dollar as the world reserve currency, and that was solidified, and there was almost no chance that that could get overthrown. They had that pretty solidly in the bag. And so uh, with this, you have an agreement between the Saudis and the U.S. where we would support them militarily, and we would protect them and their region in the Middle East. It was a very volatile place, and always has been, and always probably will be. Uh, the Ottoman Empire actually was relatively peaceful, especially compared to modern times when the U.S. came in and basically screwed everything up. But regardless, we made this deal with them, and they basically became our proxy in the Middle East. So if we have issues or want things done in the Middle East, the Saudi are the ones that do it. And in exchange, uh, we support them, sell them a bunch of weapons and train their troops and these kinds of things. And also in exchange on the other side, they denominate and make sure that the dollar is always the way to buy oil. 
Now, in modern times, currently, we are running into some issues here where um, there are countries that are starting to increase competition. So we currently have a fiat money system based on fractional reserve banking, and the dollar is the world reserve currency. But you have places like Russia and China who are starting to sell oil for other currencies and trying to make deals uh, among themselves where they don't have to deal with the dollar. And, And that cannot be allowed. That is competition. We don't like competition. So you have that. Then you also have models such as Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies that are actually offering some alternatives that just about anybody can participate in. And so you're starting to have this increased competition of the dollar at the same time as the dollar is experiencing uh, relatively, historically at least, extremely high levels of inflation. And so uh, this is something that might turn into something when you especially look at the Austrian view of the economic cycle and where we are and the dollar being the reserve currency, but all the holes that are in the dollar and all of this kind of coming to a head. So uh, the next few years will probably be pretty interesting. Now, banks, in most cases, they even though we're on this fractional reserve banking model, and again, if you want more on that, go back to the uh, episode I did in season one about, I think, the modern history of money was probably where I did that. But again, I'll put a link in the show notes. But um, we're on this model where the banks take, let's say, $100, and then they can loan out, say, $1,000, even though they only have 100 because on average, statistically, people won't all come back for their money at the same time, so they only need a fraction of the total to be held in order to technically be able to cover anything. Now, uh, we have learned since 2008 that the government will step in and bail out the banks anytime they need it. Uh, That should not have been a surprise to anybody, but it was to many. And so uh, with this, that kind of brings us from the previous episode I did on the origins of money. It's kind of where we left off was fractional reserve banking and fiat money. And now we have this issue, especially post-COVID-19, where these reserve requirements that the banks had, they used to have to keep 10% roughly of funds uh, on hold. They had to actually have them and then they could loan out the rest. They could loan out the other 90%. And this applied mainly to checking accounts. So there were some accounts like CDs, savings accounts, things like this, where those rates were lower. But post-COVID, Basically, all of these reserve requirements went away because the government said, well, you know, we don't need these pesky requirements here. Uh, You can just do whatever the heck you want. And so that's the world that we have been living in for a year or two. And I do not believe that that will go well. So uh, that's where we are, bringing us into the next stage going into history. So uh, that kind of sums up the modern history of government, modern history of money, bringing us up to the modern day in both of those. And so now we can get to the modern history of education. So like I said, we talked about the Prussian model, which was for uh, creating good soldiers. And uh, they expanded that to creating good citizens that didn't ask questions, that followed orders, that uh, were not extremely literate in many different fields and knew how they all connected. They were just highly skilled in this one little thing. And then they were a lot easier to control if they didn't know all the other things that connected to it. So uh, that model was exported. But um, that model was being created around the 1700s. And at that time, 
for the most part, education worldwide was mostly privately funded. And I'll focus on the U.S. again here, too. But especially in the U.S., education was mostly privately funded. You had tutors. You had schoolhouses that parents would chip in for in a community. You even had charity schools for people that were poor and parents that couldn't pay for those. Uh, those largely were Catholic schools. And so you had you had schools and kids were getting educated and there was no real government involvement. Uh, one example of this that I think I talked a little bit more about in the episode in season one would be the College of William and Mary. That's where Thomas Jefferson went. There was no set amount of time that you were going to go there to university. There was really no structure in what classes you had to take or what you had to do. And it wasn't segregated by age at all. There were older people, younger people, whatever. There was a lot of discourse. It was very open, very unstructured. And that's kind of how things were at that time. And if you think about the minds that came out of that time period versus the minds that come out today, uh, yeah, a little interesting there. Uh, literacy rates actually arguably were higher at this time period than they are today, which is also a little interesting. Um, as you shift into the 1800s, the early 1800s, uh, the main system was monitorial schooling. So with this, teachers uh, would teach the students, but largely the best students. They would get most of the focus. And then those best students, the top of the class, would then help to teach the other students. So you would basically, a very simplified model, the teacher would teach the best kids, those kids would teach the other kids. And this was this monitorial schooling model. But this uh, did start to change. And so in the late 1800s to early 1900s, this is really when the Prussian model got imported into the US and elsewhere. And this was a model that was more structured, more segregated. And you were also shifting into this paradigm of having compulsory school. So this would be time period, let's say roughly 1852 to 1918, or the dates I have written down at least, when uh, compulsory education became a thing. When they first said that schooling and education was compulsory and that was dictated by the state, a lot of parents were not very fond of that. There were certain places and uh, cities where soldiers actually came with guns, armed soldiers, and escorted the kids to school because the parents refused to uh, let the state raise their children and say how they can and can't educate their children. So uh, this is kind of a big deal at the time, whereas now we just think it's perfectly normal to have compulsory education. Now, with this Russian or Prussian model that was starting to take effect with compulsory schooling, so basically all the kids are now going to school, it, uh, like I said, was more structured and these things. Uh, what the kids did, kind of what this looked like, is that you sit still, you sit quiet, you have a teacher or a lecture-based structure where someone, an expert at the front of the room, is telling you all your things you need to know. The content was standardized, so pretty much everybody was learning the same stuff. You have a very strict schedule. Think of the bell and also think of Pavlov's experiment with the dog. And then you also have a large disconnect between subjects. Subjects were no longer uh, taught in a connected way where you are learning about this time period and you're learning about the science of that time period. You're learning about, you know, math related to that and all of these things that all connected. Instead, the, everything was segregated to a much greater degree. And this was the model that uh, became prominent, let's say, within the 1900s. And so bringing that into the modern history that we're talking about now and into modern times, now, 
you have things like standardized testing, where the result is that kids are taught to pass the test, not necessarily taught to really understand the content. And when the funding is based on the test results, then that is kind of just the way it's going to be. In addition to that, this increases this competitive feel for education. Education is basically gamified based on your scores. So you want a high score because that makes you better than somebody else. And it's this competition. But again, it's all about the score. It's all about the grade. It's not about really understanding the content, because that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're interested in. It doesn't matter how much you really understand. What matters is that you've memorized these certain things, you can spit it out and you get a good score, because it's all about the score, because it's all gamified. Uh, bring that into modern, modern times with technology. And yes, it's gotten much worse. Now, another issue is that kids in today's education system are taught to the lowest common denominator. This is a reversal of the monitorial method that I mentioned earlier. So it used to be that teachers taught the best kids, the best kids then helped teach the other kids. Now it's the teacher dumbs down her curriculum and everything she teaches to the lowest common denominator. So maybe not to the kid that's struggling the absolute most, but to the bottom, let's say 10 or 20%, because you don't want them to get left out. Oftentimes you can't even fail kids in a lot of modern schools. And so you have to dumb things down, down to their level. Now, where does that leave the rest of the kids? Well, it leaves the top tier at a very low education level compared to where they could be or should be. They're also not teaching. They are not helping with this process. And teaching is thought to be the best way to learn any content. And so when they were teaching it, they were learning pretty well, probably. And when they're not, and they're not even getting the challenge that they might once have, uh, what they care about doesn't really matter. They're just taught to, hey, memorize these things, spit it out. Well, they can do that super easy. Then are they really learning a whole lot? Is that true education? Yeah, probably not. So the schools now are considered more like a babysitter. That's kind of this role that they currently play in modern culture. Instead of it being a place where kids truly learn and get a real education, it's more that, well, uh, yeah, my kids are going to school. You know, what else would I do? How could I do this any other way? We both work. And so, yeah, we got to send our kids to this uh, babysitter, basically the school. And the babysitter is the state. And a lot of people have a lot of issues with the state, the government. They think they're corrupt and inefficient. The uh, public education system has all these problems. And yet they say, state, here, raise my kids. So there might be an issue with that, too. But beyond that, schools now teach morality. I remember when I was in school, you had this big push for character traits. And it's all about, you know, how to be a good person. So morality is something that is taught now, where whereas in the past, you got some of that mainly because you were living in this Christian milieu, especially in the US. But aside from that, that wasn't really thought to be the point of school. That wasn't really their jurisdiction. That's what parents did. The school taught uh, subjects. They taught mathematics and these types of things, whereas now uh, the schools have a large role to play in teaching morality. The school also becomes now the source of self-esteem for many people, whether that be on a social level. So the kids, they want to feel good. They want people to like them because they're around, you know, hundreds of other kids exactly their same age. And so this aspect of being around their peers plays a big role in their self-esteem. In addition to this, they're getting these grades. They're getting these scores. And if you score well, if you get a good grade, then you're a good student. 
you're a smart person. And if you don't, you're not. So uh, self-esteem is also tied to this gamified version of education. You have the highest influence for kids being their own peers. Do you really want your kid to learn from other kids? Have that be their primary source of uh, learning the culture, learning morality, learning everything? Uh, Maybe you do. I don't know. It doesn't sound like a great idea. But in addition to all of these problems, there are more problems because this contributes also to the breakdown of the family unit. If you remember in the previous episode, the family unit was kind of the base of a lot of modern society, including government, is one of the founding factors there. It's pretty important in our culture. And the modern family is largely broken down. You have uh, broken homes where you don't have a mother and father being more the norm now. And uh, yeah, it's led to a lot of different issues, and we're not really going to get into that. You can go to Jordan Peterson, maybe might be a good... uh, path to follow if you want more on that. But you also have a very little focus today. You don't even have classes on most of these things. Things like entrepreneurship and finance, skills and trades, civics, philosophy, rhetoric. These are things that are very important in life. These are life skills that you should probably have, especially if you want to be at any kind of in uh, higher echelon level within the corporate world or have your own business or anything like that. You need these skills. These are very important skills, and they're not really taught in most modern schools. So that's a bit of an issue. Now, when you look from a trivium model, so a brief overview of what the trivium is, trivium would be grammar, logic, rhetoric. And that is how education historically has been uh, brought to children and how people have learned for a very, very long time. They were using this in Rome. They were using this in Greece. They were using this in early America. But with the trivium method, it used to be that you learned the full trivium. You learned grammar. And once you learned the basics, the grammar of something, then you learned logic. You learned how all of the somethings, all of the grammar fits together, what it all means, how you can use it and manipulate it and understand it. And then you learned rhetoric. Basically, how do you then teach this to somebody? Or how do you then express this or uh, get an opinion across to somebody or convince somebody of something? How do you give a good speech, write a good paper, write a good proposal? This would all be rhetoric. And like I said, an education used to be thought of as including all of these things. And let's say even like into a high school level, you should have all these things perfectly capable. Uh, However, modern schooling is now mainly only focused on grammar. And you might get some segregated logic. You rarely get a lot of rhetoric. And that's just unfortunately where we are. So it's all about the grammar. It's memorize this date, memorize this place, memorize this person. I have this textbook, and I'm the teacher, and I'm the expert, and I know everything. So just accept everything I say, never question it. Don't worry about looking into it, because that'll be culturally shunned among your peers. But in addition to that, I will tell you that you're wrong, because uh, and even if you're not wrong, it's not going to be on the test. So why would you even waste your time with it? And so uh, that's basically where we end up, where all you learn is the grammar. You don't really learn how everything ties together. You don't learn the logic. That's not really part of the Prussian model. But even when you do, it's very segregated. So you might really understand how this economic model works within a capitalist system and blah, 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 things related to that. But you won't really learn how that 
connects to all these other aspects of society and the world stage and all of these kinds of things because you're not learning the logic. You're not learning how they all connect. And yeah, rhetoric is even further down on the list. So for a modern author, uh, modern-ish, that I would highly, highly recommend, I would say John Taylor Gatto. He would be number one in my book. So with this, there are seven lessons that he talks about, and I'm just going to briefly read them, and you can think on them as you will, because this episode is running long, and I need to wrap it up. But basically, the seven lessons from John Taylor Gatto. He says these are the things that basically you learn in school. Number one, confusion because everything is out of context and disconnected from each other. You learn position. This class is where you belong, and it's best for you. And so you get your sense of where you belong and where you should be and who you are from school. You also learn indifference. You don't care too much. You have all these bells that are going off, so even if you're really focused on something you really like, that bell goes off, you know, it doesn't really matter what you're really interested in, what you like to do, uh, you got to follow the system, you got to follow the bell. Bell rings, you move, period. Uh, Action, response, stimulus, response. You take away the critical thinking in between the two, and that's kind of where you're left with, with indifference. You have a lot of busy work and things that don't really matter, you teach to the test. Another thing you learn is emotional dependency. So you get these stars and checks and smiley faces and grades and prizes and passes, all of these things. And you are dependent on the teacher's discretion. And so the school is the one that tells you when you should feel good about yourself and when you shouldn't. Uh, Emotional dependency. Again, I mentioned that earlier with some other examples. You also learn intellectual dependency. I would argue this might be one of the most important here. And so with this, you depend on learning from experts, the way that they say it and what they say. So the teacher says something and it's what I say, it's how I say, it's this is all you need to know. And beyond that, uh, well, it's not part of your learning and why would you even want it? And it doesn't apply. And so don't even go there. So you learn this intellectual dependency uh, where you have to lean on the experts because they're the ones that will feed you everything that you need to increase your intellect. You also learn provisional self-esteem where you are... Uh, focused on these detailed ratings by an authority figure. There's no self-evaluation. And so your self-esteem, again, like I mentioned earlier, provisional on grades and things of that nature that are handed down from an authority figure. You also learn surveillance, where you can't hide. There's no privacy. People will snitch on the rule breakers, and they're encouraged to. If someone breaks the rules, then, then you should snitch on them and tell the teacher and all these things. And so you're always being watched. So always be careful what you do. That's what you learn in school, all these wonderful things. Um, That's at least according to John Taylor Gatto. Now, again, if you want more information on all of these things, go back to the earlier episodes I did back in season one, I'll link them in the show notes. Again, it's similar content, it's parallel content, I would say, but it is different than what I covered. I, again, didn't have even the framework of the ages of man. And uh, so that's uh, just as one example, that was kind of a big factor in today's episode, whereas it didn't exist at all in the previous ones. But I do go into detail on things like the Federal Reserve, on some conspiratorial things, on the evolution of the education system, getting into John Dewey and examples like that. And so if you're interested in this type of stuff, those episodes will give you more depth on some of these details. 
And there's also the two episodes at the end of the, the series I did. It was the second series of season one where I talked about the modern history of government, of money, then of education. Then I did one on Keynesian versus, versus Austrian economics. And then I did the one on early American history on the founding of America and that early evolution, the uh, basically the Federalist coup that occurred with the Constitution. And so if you're interested in those things, then those episodes will provide more for you. Other than that, I can say thank you very much for listening. That is always something that I want to point out because I really appreciate you as a listener. In addition, if you're looking forward to the next few episodes, the next one will get into where we are today. So I talked about the origins last week. I talked about more modern history this week, and I'll talk more about where we are today as a result of all these things. Where have this led us? What is the situation we are currently living in? That will be next week. And so if you're not as interested in the history aspects, although I would argue they are extremely important, then you will probably like the next few episodes as well. And as we shift, we'll then shift into, I think after that will be alternatives. So the different aspects of homeschooling and blockchain and probably agorism will get in there at some point. It'll probably be its own episode, but we'll get into that kind of stuff before we shift on into the next phase. So that's what's coming up. I hope that you continue to join us for all of these endeavors. If you're interested in helping to support the podcast, please leave a rating or better yet, leave a rating and a review or even better than that. You could also go to our Patreon page or the Subscribestar page and support financially. You could give $4 a month is what I uh, recommend. At least that's the bottom tier. And then you've got an $8 a month level as well. And maybe even a high level if anybody has interest. I was actually asked to put a higher level on there. So I did. And so with these, you get different perks. You get some merchandise. You get to make a request for an episode, these types of things. And so if you're interested, please seek those out. That is all in the show notes as well. I will wrap up the episode here. It's a little longer than usual, but not by too much. So with that, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for all of your support. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.